I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. Matthew, chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. And as you're turning there, I'd just like to thank all of you for the warm welcome that you've given to my wife Hannah and I over the last five months. We've been blessed and we treasure the friendships that the Lord's given us here at FBG. So look there with me. Look there with me at Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. It says, And when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Have you ever heard the expression, to pay lip service to something. Lip service is, of course, when you say that you'll do something that you don't actually have any intention of doing. To my own shame, I've been kind of guilty of paying lip service to my wife, Hannah, lately when she's been asking me to do some DIY projects around the house. I always tell her, sweetheart, when a man says he's going to do something, it means he's going to do it. You don't have to keep reminding him every six months about it. <laughs> In our scripture this morning, we'll see a clear example of paying lip service to God's authority. You know, Matthew's made clear up to this point in his gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one that the entire Old Testament points towards. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his kingdom is eternal. Yet even in light of these truths, not everyone responded to such authority with submission. You know, authority is a strong word. It signifies power and control. Everybody has some sort of authority over them, whether it's your employer at work, or teachers at school, or the police, or someone else in the government. But there is one who has authority above and beyond all other earthly authorities. You may remember at the end of Matthew's gospel, the Lord Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. He is the ultimate authority. Let me bring you up to speed as to where we're at here this morning in, in Matthew's gospel. 
It's actually during the final week of Jesus' life. And during this final week of Jesus' life, he'd already done several things demonstrating his authority. He came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and received praise and worship from all the people. When he arrived at that temple, he acted on his authority by driving out all those who were irreverently using the temple courts as a means of financial gain. And then he taught and healed those who came to him in the temple courts as children shouted out, Hosanna to the son of David. You know, this exercise of authority by Jesus was really starting to rub the Jewish establishment the wrong way. I mean, here's a guy who holds no credentials. He hasn't gone through any sort of ordination process. He wasn't seeking the approval of anyone in the Jewish establishment. And you know, when Jesus taught in the temple courts, he taught as one who had authority. Whatever he said, went. He didn't have any footnotes. Jesus wasn't quoting any well-respected rabbis who had come before him. He had authority because it had been given to him from God. So here's the Jewish establishment, and they're getting really bent out of shape by all these things that Jesus is doing. Because they think that they're the ones who have the authority. They think that they're the ones who have all the religious credentials. And all these events led up to this conflict where we find ourselves today. They challenge Jesus by asking him where he gets his authority at in verse 23. They're essentially saying, hey, where do you get off doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do that? So imagine with me to get a mental picture. Here's Jesus standing in the middle of the temple courts in Jerusalem. And he's teaching. He's teaching about serious matters of the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, amongst this big crowd of people, he's interrupted. And there's a stare down with those who are some of the highest ranking Jews around. And they want to shut him up. And there's this extremely tense confrontation about the issue of authority. Look at it with me, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? You know, they're hoping that he'll say that he gets his authority directly from God, which Jesus actually said that on numerous previous accounts, but they want to be able to falsely accuse him of blasphemy claiming to be equal with God so that they can try to put him to death. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that these Jewish rulers took issue with with what Jesus said and did. After all, they'd already rejected the teaching of John the Baptist, the prophet who came before Jesus to preach the way of righteousness and repentance. So Jesus, in his wisdom, actually uses the ministry of John the Baptist to issue a test to them. He doesn't answer their question with an answer. He actually answers their question question with a question, which is a practice typical of Jewish rabbis. Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. It's like he's saying, hey, if you answer my question, then you'll have the answer to your own question. And while the Jewish leaders asked about where Jesus' authority comes from, he asked them where the authority of the baptism of John came from. Was it from heaven or from man? If you can answer that, then I'll tell you where my authority comes from. Did it carry the authority of God or was it merely of human invention and human affirmation 
because the people believed it. You know, almost everyone at that time knew about John the Baptist. And you'll recall that John was the very last of the Old Testament prophets. And his message was simple. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's the voice crying out in the wilderness that the Messiah is coming and it's time to get your heart right with the Lord. It's time to repent, turn to God. And when he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, it was to symbolize the inward cleansing of their dirty hearts. And then one day, Jesus actually comes down. He comes walking by, and John makes it really clear. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the Messiah. There he is right there. He's the one. The chief priests and the elders were being honest. They could have easily answered Jesus' question. They took offense at John's baptism of repentance because they saw themselves as the ones who were already doing all the right things. They didn't see themselves as sinners in need of heart-level change. They obviously didn't believe that John the Baptist's authority was from God because you know what? If they had, they would have believed his message and they would have believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So the Jewish establishment got together in a big huddle, tried to draw up a play. But these hypocritical leaders, they're caught in a catch-22. You see, there were a lot of people who did believe that John's ministry was from the Lord. Pretty much all the common people held that John was a true prophet from God. And you know what? The Jewish establishment, they didn't want to lose face with all these folks because they had rejected John. If they said his ministry was simply man-made, they would have instantly lost all credibility in the people's eyes. But they sure couldn't say that John's baptism and teaching were from God. Otherwise, Jesus could have just simply said, then why didn't you believe him? Why don't you believe me? So as a cop-out answer, as a means of political posturing, the Jews try to weasel their way out of the question by just saying, we don't know. Even in spite of all the evidence, their hearts were so hard, they could not admit that Jesus was who he said he was. So then Jesus said, then neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. It's like he's saying, "Mm, you're so hard-hearted and hypocritical. You don't even have the right to ask me that question. Can you appreciate the patience of Jesus right here? You know, Jesus loved his enemies. He actually took the time to show these self-righteous rabbis the error of their way and issue them a warning. And he did it in such a tactful, gracious way in light of how vicious and offensive they were. So in saying this, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that his ministry and that of John the Baptist are linked. They both preached repentance and faith in God for the forgiveness of sins. You know, the leadership in Jerusalem, they had absolutely missed it. They had totally missed And they were totally failing to respond what God was calling them and everyone else to do. Sure, they paid lip service to God's rule and reign in their lives. But they were trying to practice religion in whatever way that they thought was right. Instead of actually submitting to God through repentance and faith. You know, I really believe that we here at First Baptist Georgetown can apply this by guarding against celebrating Christmas in our own way instead of God's way. You know, it's easy sometimes to get swept up in the sentimentality 
and of the holiday and really approach it more for the traditions of opening gifts and sharing meals and family time. None of which are bad things. They're just not enough. You know, we talk a lot about putting Christ back in Christmas. But did you know there's a way to actually do that? If we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ in a way that is biblical, in a way that's subject to God's authority, we need to understand that the Christmas season is actually about coming to the cross. You know, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph, he told them that the child was, child was to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That is the good news of Christmas, church. That's what it's all about. So, after the confrontational questioning back and forth, Jesus uses a parable to warn the Pharisees and expose their hypocritical hearts. And in the parable, there's a father and two sons, and we're told that this father owns a vineyard. Naturally, the relationship of a father to his sons is one of authority and submission. I mean, sons are obligated to obey their father, right? It's not optional, is it? The father very simply says to his sons that they're to go out and work in his vineyard. The first son says, I will not. But then later he changes his mind and goes. The second son says to his father, oh, I go, father. I go, sir. But then he never actually does. You know, neither of these sons actually treated their father the way that he deserved to be treated. Neither of these two sons were totally obedient. And just like them, every one of us falls into one of two camps. Each person is either like the first brother or the second brother. The first son responds in a way that we might find a little bit surprising. It's no way for a son to treat his father. He outright rejects him. He says, I will not. Yeah, right. I'm not going to go work in your vineyard. Forget you. It's total denial of his father's authority. He's not even going to try to be obedient. He's not even going to try to fake it. There's no lip service here. But then something amazing happens to this rebellious son. It says that he changes his mind and goes. Did you know that the word repentance literally means to have a change of mind? Repentance means to stop digging in your heels in a fight against God and instead embrace the God who you formerly rejected. It's different than just trying to clean up your life. It's an acknowledgement that you cannot clean up your life. It's coming to your senses and admitting that you've had it all wrong. It's when you turn in submission to God's authority over your life, choosing to embrace salvation on his terms instead of your own. It's when you stop trusting in a false sense of your own self-righteousness and instead you throw yourself at the mercy of the judge. That is true repentance. Now let's look at the second son. When told to go and work in his father's vineyard, he says, I go, sir. But he never actually does. This son simply paid lip service to his father's authority. 
And then he totally undermines it by disobeying when it comes to real action. You don't have to turn there with me, but I'd like to read to you a passage out of Matthew chapter 7 during the famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In the parable of the two sons, the second son is a picture of none other than the self-righteous, hypocritical Jewish authorities. These were the guys who were busy with all sorts of religious activities. They were thought of as the, the super squeaky clean righteous people in society. These are the people who look like the perfect moms and dads in society. They give of their time, energy, and resources for the sake of their religion. And they're convinced that they solved all their own problems, that they are all squared away because of the things that they've done. But Jesus likens them to the second son for one simple reason. They lack repentance. They think that God is just fawning over them because of their righteous lives. And they can't wait till the day when they get to stand before him and receive all the praise and glory and honor for what they've done and the lives they've lived and how much better they were than all the other horrible people out there in society. You see, it's very possible to be busy with all sorts of religious activities while still only paying lip service to God's authority. A person who inwardly lacks repentance over their sin, yet wants to live a religious life and be seen as a good person to those around them? Well, they're a hypocrite, just like the Jewish authorities here. What Jesus is telling us in our text this morning is that giving mere verbal affirmation to God's authority over your life is not enough. Repentance and faith are what is required to enter God's kingdom. In other words, we submit to Jesus' authority through genuine repentance, not through sentimentality or lip service. The kingdom of God must be entered on God's terms, according to his methods, in submission to his authority. Did you notice that in this parable there's no mention of a third son who says, I will go, Father, and actually does? Well, he's there. He is the one telling the parable. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Jesus was the obedient son who did the will of his father. Not only did Jesus always obey God, he even obeyed when it cost him his life. When he faced the wrath of God on the cross, what was his prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. More than just lip service, more than mere sentiment, the Son of God obeyed. Well, after telling the parable, Jesus asked which of the two sons did the will of their father. And the Jewish leaders, they think that they're smart when they answer him. They give him a quick answer. They say, the first son. Well, ding, 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 ding. They got it right. But little did they know 
what this parable was actually about. They had totally incriminated themselves with their answer. And Jesus crushes them when he reveals what this parable is actually all about. When these ultra-religious Jews think that they're the ones doing the will of God, Jesus reveals that it's actually the prostitutes and the tax collectors who are doing God's will. The Pharisees think that they're the first son, but they're actually the second son. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. To say that they were going into the kingdom before them didn't mean that they would simply get there first and that the Jewish leaders would get there later on. No. This means that they're in because they repented and believed in the message of John, but the Pharisees aren't in because they had still rejected him. For Jesus to say that the prostitutes and tax collectors would enter the kingdom of God and that the religious elite would not was scandalous. You see, the prostitutes and tax collectors were seen as the scum of society. It's really, it's a euphemism to describe the lowest of the low, the worst people out there that you can imagine. Let me give you an example of what this might look like today. Say that during church this morning, there's a criminal going around in the parking lot breaking into cars. Well, good news, the police eventually catch this criminal. But when he's locked up in jail, he hears the message of the gospel through a ministry outreach, and he entrusts the forgiveness of his sin to Jesus Christ. But then that same morning when that young man was breaking into cars, one of the most committed, long-standing members of the church was in one of the classrooms preparing, for, preparing to teach life group. But this person sees their salvation a little differently. They feel that their many years of service in the church has put God in their debt. And they're sure that because of all their hard work, God kind of has to forgive them for all the wrong things that they've done. Do you know that one of these individuals is entering the kingdom of God and the other isn't? The repentant criminal is justified in the eyes of God, but that faithful church member is not. That's shocking, isn't it? Well, Jesus clarifies even further in our final verse, verse 32. Look there with me. He says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. In saying that John's ministry was in the way of righteousness, Jesus means that John was, by the grace of God, a righteous man who preached the message of righteousness. He wasn't a fake. He wasn't a phony. He was the real deal. And his message was one of righteousness. The Jewish elite rejected his message, but many of the worst sinners in society accepted it. But think about it. How can the worst of the worst have any hope of gaining a righteous position in God's sight? I mean, they've already messed it up so bad. They've already done so embarrassing, so many embarrassing things that they should be so ashamed of. Well, one of the most marvelous things about the message of the gospel is that the righteousness that God requires of man, 
He also provides for man. The only way for sinners to be made righteous before God is for them to be given a righteousness from someone else. And the only man who ever possessed a righteousness of his own was the obedient son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, the way for people to have their sins forgiven and to be counted righteous before God is to repent and believe in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God does not care what you have done or what you have become. If you come to him in repentance and faith, he will forgive you. Isn't that good news, church? Isn't that joyous news? What a God that we serve. And he will change your life. He changed the lives of those tax collectors and prostitutes. He could have changed the lives of those Pharisees had they come to him. You know, that's really the evidence of true repentance and faith. It's a changed life. Born again to live a new life. It's supernatural. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a turtle sitting on top of a fence post? If you're ever out driving in, on a dirt road out in rural Texas, and you see a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, you can be sure of one thing. He didn't get there on his own. God places those who repent and believe in the gospel in a righteous standing before himself. And those who really repent are transformed by God and given a new heart so that they obey him. You know, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by the good deeds of repentance and obedience. And you know what? Not only that, now as newborn Christians, we can find joy in our obedience and submission to God's authority. You know, that's the reason why the Son of God came to us, church. As we sang this morning, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. That's really what's doubly incriminating for the Jewish leaders. Is that first of all, they didn't believe the message of John the Baptist. But even when they saw the supernaturally changed lives of those who did, they still didn't believe. Their hearts were still hard. They refused to change their minds. They dug in their heels, thinking that they knew a way to God that didn't involve real heart-level change. Please, First Baptist, don't be people who simply run around doing religious things, all the while allowing yourself to think that you're earning God's favor by, by, while undermining his authority by not acknowledging your sin and repenting. As we celebrate the birth of our Savior this year, let's remember his authority over our lives. And that the way for us to submit to that authority is through repentance and faith 
embracing his will and his way.